You're listening to episode 68 of Passage Butle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about my podcasting work, publications, and to subscribe to my newsletter, check this episode's notes or go to pazdechipotle.com. of the idea of a quote-unquote Mexican cuisine has had a centuries-long and complex road. It has reflected the identity, needs, and beliefs of people. It also reflects our ever-so-changing food system, historical events, and the culinary innovation that has taken place over hundreds of years. The colonial period is one of such larger-than-life moments that defined the future history of the world. For the Americas, and especially for Mexico, we can sum up some key factors that transformed our food system and cuisine. Second, the combination of European and native agricultural tools and techniques was defined well by the eating habits and dietary preferences of the native population and Spanish colonialists. Third, for the first time, there was a mass production of foods like wheat flour and refined sugar. And last, this period saw the most intense exchange of techniques, utensils, food knowledge and culinary experimentation. For anyone who has visited Mexico, it is very evident that the presence of Catholic churches has left a huge cultural footprint with a complex and vast legacy that is very much alive to this day. Let me take a moment here to explain a few things that will be crucial to this episode by laying out the actual role of religious communities in the colonial period. While it is true that for clergymen and women of the cloth, their incursions into the Americas meant a real desire to spread the gospel and save souls, but it is also true that the operation of the colonial territories was run by the church as much as it was by the authorities appointed by the Spanish crown, and the many religious orders or groups that were sent had the purpose to serving this alliance. Now, let me tell you what religious orders are. These are groups or communities of men and women whose religious practice is defined by a specific purpose. For example, some of them have specialized in helping the poor, others in educating children, some in offering medical services, and quite a lot have dedicated and quite a lot see as their life's mission to live a spiritual life of contemplation. They have unique dressing codes, colors, and heraldry that differentiate them, and most of them had their origin back in the medieval period. Fast forward to our times. In recent years, we have seen an increased interest in finding more about the role that nuns and priests had in shaping the colonial cuisine by creating lavish dishes that defined our gastronomy. Well, today we're going to explore the intimate kitchens of religious convents and monasteries, and we'll get to meet the men and women that lived and worked there, the motivations behind their creations, and cast new light on the reasons why their role in shaping our food is fundamental to the creation of the idea of a so-called Mexican gastronomy, and I promise many, many surprises that will blow your mind. Joining me today is Dr. Alberto Peralta de Legarreta, 
who, from his two bachelor's degrees in communications and ethno-history to his master's and doctoral studies, Dr. Peralta has dedicated a lifetime to exploring the gastronomic history of Mexico. He is a professor of gastronomic philosophy and gastronomic culture and tourism at the Anahuac University in Mexico City. And it is the author of several books in Spanish, including Who Doesn't Like Chile, Chile's for Everyone, and Gastronomic Culture in Pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. And he's a regular contributor on specialized cultural and gastronomic magazines. So as you can see, he is just the right person to guide us into this epic quest. In the notes of this episode, you can find links to connect with Dr. Alberto Peralta and learn more about the books and references we mention during the interview. There is also a link to the special blog post and the YouTube version of this episode that contains images of the many things, places and food we talk about today. Well, I think we're all set up now, so let's get started. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Alberto. It's such a pleasure to finally have you here. You have no idea how excited I am to sit with such an accomplished academic like yourself. I can't wait to get started. How are you doing? Fine, fine. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, let's get right into it. I think you and I can agree that thanks to a lot of these tourism campaigns that uh, Mexico has produced, most people around the world are very familiar with the idea of the quote-unquote charm of Mexican colonial cities. And this term actually, well, refers to the cities that were funded in the colonial period because of their natural resources or geographical location or any other advantage that they have had back in the day, they were planned and envisioned as important urban centers. And of course, as any fan of the show will know, I always get very excited when talking about my own hometown, the beautiful city of Puebla, that is one of such important colonial cities. So in a nutshell, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the church as an institution was really a part of the colonial state and nunneries and monasteries had, among other roles, the responsibility, well, to manage public records, in some cases, run entire haciendas, which were agricultural estates, provide basic and higher education, and of course, suppress traditional religious practices and convert the indigenous population to the Catholic faith. I mean, that, that's what happened, really. Why don't you introduce us to the types of religious orders that came to New Spain, which was the social role of of monks, uh, priests, you know, of the male orders, friars and so on, and what nuns did in this period. Like, how how did they differ? Well, um, you are uh, right when you... When you talk about the importance of the uh, religious orders and the Catholic Church in, in the New Spain, I think uh, the the government and the, and the church were were just one. They were uh, so tightly uh, attached, so uh, the government uh, wouldn't uh, take a step. The church was always uh, taking care of the acts of the government. So uh, that is why uh, very soon after the conquest, the church came to the new Spain. But the very first ones to come here were the Franciscans. They were very poor men and they arrived uh, first in the the first moment uh, alone in uh, 1523. They were called the Lamencos because they they came from the the Protestant countries that were enemies uh, with Spain. And uh, we really don't know why they arrived here. They were dangerous. <laughs> uh, not not that they were traitors, but they lived in the Netherlands, uh, where the fight uh, against the, the Catholic Church uh, was, was becoming a very real problem. So uh, they came here, perhaps running away from that problem, and uh, very idealist, trying to uh, renew the, the, the Catholic Church. Uh, one year later, the Franciscan sent another 12 Franciscan, and uh, they were incredible, incredible uh, group of men. They were completely uh, faithful to the Catholic Church and the King of Spain, but they were reformist too. 
they, they didn't like what they were seeing there in, in, in Europe. It was very disappointing for them to, to see the church falling in such a terrible way. So they came here with the idea of rebuilding, really, the church. And they thought they, they would find uh, a new multitude of, of souls to save. A few years later, two or three, the Dominicos came but still poor. And then the Augustinians and the, these uh, three orders, they built a lot of convents everywhere in the, in, in the new Spain. And they uh, took all the territory. They, uh, they, they made a, a really, really important labor. In, in preparing the, the Indians and, and saving their souls. That, that, that was the idea. Later, there were a lot of orders, like the Mercedarios, the Jesuits, the Carmelitas, the Scalzos, but they were not poor, uh, and that puts them in another, in another place. So uh, we usually forget the, um, the kitchens of these three first orders, uh, Franciscan, Dominicos, and uh, Augustinians. And uh, um, in the case of women, there were lots of orders, so many. As you are a, a native in Puebla, you know that there were more than 30 different convents and orders and regulations and habitos, the, the, the dressing of the nuns. They were a, a special place for the, for the girls in the new Spain. We'll talk about that later, I think. Yes. Oh my God, this is such an exciting setting. And you touched on many important things, like the fact that it will become important in history, the fact that some were poor and the fact that some had money. And that will determine the kind of relationship they're going to have with uh, not only with natives, but also with the rest of the colonial society. So Let's make a mental note on that. Men had a public life, poor or rich, they had a public life and they interacted, you know, face to face with people. Women, not so much. They, they tended to be more time either completely having a cloistered life or semi-cloistered life. But also we will touch on that. But for now, let's just establish this difference. So considering these distinctions uh, between the kind of different types of spirituality that all these groups had really, I think, were fundamental for the church to come up with strategies to really accelerate cultural integration of indigenous people into European values. Like you said, they came here with the idea to save souls, <laughs> uh, integrate them to the way of life, their cosmovision, and so on. I think they saw the need to create new rights religious expressions that would kind of speed up this process. Uh, one term that we can use today is cultural syncretism, which is just a fancy word to say that they combined elements from the indigenous practices and mixed them with Spanish Catholic ones. And it was just pretty much the same way it happened in Europe thousands of years before when Christian missionaries in the early Christianism combined, you know, like, quote-unquote, pagan rites and created new celebrations like Saturnalia that the Romans used to celebrate that became the 12 days of Christmas for uh, Christians. So in the case of Mexico, I mean, we still have more than 64 different indigenous tribes. So just to imagine the amount of rituals that they would have had and the big pantheon of gods they used to celebrate that was like uh, open season for monks and friars to start picking up, you know, celebrations to start supplanting these rites that, you know, many of them were agricultural or, or rites of passage, you know, like births, marriages and so on, uh, changing them into Christian celebrations, celebrations around parishes and the patron saints. So can you please talk about the role of these celebrations of these patron saints that in Spanish is called fiesta patronal and the use and presence of food, uh, in this case, as a vehicle, I guess, uh, to also mark these festivities? Of course, uh, it was very important to match the agricultural calendar in Europe to the one in the new Spain. It was very important because the world is just one. That calendar was almost the same here and there. So uh, we can tell that um, when uh, there was rain in Europe, in some parts of Europe here too. So uh, the um, deities, uh, the gods related to, to the rain in Europe uh, had uh, festivities at the same time. So uh, those festivities were pagan, of course, and were fought by the 
Catholic Church. So it uh, slowly disappeared or transformed into new things. Uh, they, the, the people had to believe in something. You, you can't take away everything from the people. They just changed things and adapted to the new calendar. So the new calendar was exactly the same, but the deities don't. When that calendar came to America, it was in front of a similar calendar, but uh, filled with lots of gods. And uh, that was one of the most important labors uh, of friars, try to match these two calendars. It was very difficult It was because uh, you, we are talking about a, a thousand years of tradition. So you can't eliminate it and, and just change it and, and, and think that the, everything is okay and the, the people will forget. That, that, that really didn't happen. So uh, many of these old deities or beliefs were changed to saints and uh, Mary advocations. Mm-hmm. So uh, festivities... Uh, we, we now call uh, patron saint, are the rulers of the villages in, in Mexico. What we see is that they are related to agriculture in, in every way. So the production of food in the fields, in the rural part of the country, uh, is related to being good with that deities or these saints. So uh, there are lots of festivities. We can see that they are all around products like maize, beans, frijoles, no one can speak to God directly, so we need an intercessor. And that's a saint, or that, that is the Virgin Mary. Uh, so every town uh, adopted a, a saint. I have a, an example. Uh, at the same time of Tlaloc celebration, the, the God, uh, there was a celebration for a saint called San Isidro Labrador, which was a, 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 an agriculture. So both uh, deities are related to water, like John the Baptist, Huitzilopochtli, uh, uh, who is born in, in Christmas, is related very intimately with Christ. That is, that is uh, the, the mix of things that uh, take place. That's what we celebrate, you know, that uh, possibility of joining with the deity and to receive some favors. So we make ferias, we, we make uh, festivities, we call it ferias, and um, a lot of food everywhere because uh, there's no better way in Mexico to celebrate something uh, than eat with uh, the people you love and uh, the people in your community. The characteristic thing about this food is that it's for everyone. Eating is a way of showing our that we are grateful with the saints or, or the the Virgin Mary. So that is that is why uh, many festivities has has uh, so many food in the streets or in the houses. You can eat for free if you go to the to the parties. If you go to the festivity or the feria, the people is uh, calling you in the street to get inside their homes and to eat some mole. They are sharing what they received, and that is, I think, the very core of Mexican traditional food to to share to share it with someone else. That that is how we thank the deities by eating together. So it's just said a lot of very interesting things. One thing is that because, as you say, these festivities were based on the agricultural calendar that produces food, you know, becomes the facilitator of all these social activities. So sociability happens around growing plants that will become food, celebrating this food and thanking deities for these gifts that were given. Sharing these blessings is a way of honoring these deities. Thinking as a pre-Hispanic person, mm-hmm. I put it this way. Gods were working very hard to create the world and to make it function every day. They waste energy and they are expecting that the creation responds. They are waiting for us. So what, what's the response? How do we uh, generate energy? By working hard every day? and uh, by growing plants with our efforts and that energy that will be consumed in fruits and in, in cereals in, creates energy. That is the way we pay what the gods do for us every day. And we are not paying exactly. We are cooperating mm-hmm. to the maintenance of the universe. Yes. So if we stop growing plants or sharing the food, the universe may collapse. That is thinking as a pre-Hispanic person. But uh, many of these things are present uh, in the thoughts of popular uh, of popular Mexicans. Yes, that's exactly what I talked about in the previous episode, Beans, the cosmovision of the pre-Columbian world that views humans as custodians of the Earth because we are part of this universe, which is opposed to the common Western view 
or way of understanding humanity as users, as just beneficiaries. Yes, uh, it, it sounds uh, almost incredible. A uh, creature trying to sustain his gods. In Western civilization, God created us and gave us the earth, and uh, that's it. <laughs> But here we need to work and to create in our own uh, microcosmos. So uh, we work like uh, gods on earth. We are not gods, but we are creatures. And we return the energy so the gods continue living and creating and doing their job. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a team effort, really. A team effort, yes. I call it uh, some kind of a chain, a chain of labor. So uh, that is when we think about the producers in the fields, people who transport the food, and then the, the one that transforms this food in the kitchen, and the moment of service when we share the, the table. All that energy is for the is for the deities, for the maintenance mm -hmm. of the universe. We, we don't think like that today, but uh, many of these deep thoughts are still in our acts. So it is visible how pre-Hispanic we are even today. I think you're right. I think there's a very important cultural footprint in our subconscious, I think. So... Well, you were talking about my city, my hometown, uh, Puebla, and the many, many nonneries that were here. And yes, it's a very interesting case because this city, I mean, is very, very special because it was envisioned to be a cultural powerhouse. So the city of Puebla is located roughly between the port of Veracruz in the Gulf of Mexico, and Mexico City. So everybody that came from Europe, that came from Spain, had to cross through this valley to go to Mexico City. So the, the city of Puebla was created here as this cultural powerhouse where everybody had to meet, for whatever reason, by 1540, there were 19 nunneries that were created. Of course, over the centuries, many more established, and by the end of the colonial period, there was a very impressive total of 57. There were many other cities that also had loads of female institutions like Mexico City, the city of Oaxaca, Guadalajara, Querétaro, and Morelia in the state of Michoacán. And some of these female religious uh, communities were run by Franciscanas, Capuchinas, Agustinas, Dominicas, Carmelitas, Jerónimas. Well, so, so here's where things get interesting because the population inside these nunneries was a fascinating example of the cultural diversity in the colonial society. We really often think only that. In the colonial period, there were Spaniards and indigenous people. But that's really not the case. I mean, because of human trafficking and because of migration, there were many, many people from different parts of the world that ended up here. We know that these nunneries were not like hippie communes where everybody lived very happy. They actually were very structured because they mirrored the, the society outside uh, that was stratified So can you describe some more, some details about these micro societies and like the kind of people that the kind of women, like the cultural background they had uh, and which roles each one played within these spaces? Of course, there were uh, at least two different kind of um, of convents. They were for rich people. These women lived inside the convent with many privileges, like having help from uh, their houses, slaves doing their job inside the convent departments. They had their, their, their own spaces and uh, they paid a lot to be inside a relaxed ambient. On the other hand, we had the poor convents and they were very observant of the rule inside and um, they had no money. So they depended on the rich people of the New Spain to give them money to sustain. The, the girls who were inside these poor convents were mainly orphans and widows who couldn't pay for living inside a convent. Uh, let's remember, when you girls go inside a convent, you marry Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is uh, a man and uh, he needs money for having you, for sustaining you. They, he needs money or the church. So uh, you had to pay. When the poor girls uh, couldn't pay, uh, the rich ones in the in the city would keep some money to pay these fees to keep them inside the convents, protected from society, well, all the hard life outside. But uh, the nice uh, convents, uh, they paid a lot of money. If the amount is large, you have a lot of privileges inside. So inside the convents, 
there were a lot of uh, micro societies, really. It was a, a reflection of what was happening outside in the New Spain. Mostly we had Spaniards inside the convents, Criollas. Their parents uh, were Spaniards too. There was no uh, mixture of, of bloods or lineage. Uh, had the terrible condition of, of having been born in, in America. That, that's the real disgrace. In some cases, uh, some Indian girls, part of the nobility that was respected by the Spaniards, by the conquerors, these, these rich Indians um, preserved their nobility and they could go in, in, into the, the convent. Some slaves and uh, servants, they were Indians and they were black cases, Asians coming from the Philippines. So even though these servants and slaves uh, wouldn't convert into nuns. They lived inside the convent. That is important to know because these uh, servants, these slaves could go out or in the convent. They could go to their houses and tell what was happening inside the convent with the girl and then return inside to tell the sometimes afflicted girl uh, that the family was missing her so much and there was a contact with the outside. These people were important because they were in the kitchens too. That is why there was in the convent the express of the pure Spaniard gastronomy, but a lot of things coming from Africa and from Asia and from the native people of Mexico, the New Spain. That is the important thing about what was happening inside the convents. It was a little universe and the kitchen was the place where everything was happening. It was a, a, a free space for, for the expression of many of, of these girls and their servants. Yes, yes. Oh, magnificent picture of the nature of these spaces. And of course, the food knowledge and cultural knowledge that all these women will carry with them and then exchange either by force or by need at, at these kitchens. In this period when the Colombian exchange was at its height and then products, ingredients, spices were like coming and going via the trade routes, these products didn't come with instructions. Ah, but all these women inside these these institutions did know what to do with everything. You know, around the world, all cuisines have created myths, stories about the creations of very particular dishes. And sometimes, you know, they, there's myths about specific individuals that inspired a new tradition. For example, the mythologies around Thanksgiving in America and in England, There's, of course, the Earl of Sandwich, to whom the invention of, uh, well, sandwiches is attributed to. You know, like, we can find loads of examples like that. But in the case of Mexico, over the centuries, we have examples of these very heavily mythologized foods. And one of these is mole poblano, another dish that is equally important, that is very special in, in, in the city of Puebla, that is chile en nogada. They both have really heavily embellished narratives about the invention. It is at the Dominican nonary of Santa Rosa in Puebla, It's uh, recognized as the alleged cradle of mole. And the Augustinian nunnery of Santa Monica is often seen or described as the place of origin of Chiles en Nogada, which we will dispute. So why don't you tell us more about these motivations and what kind of things these nuns did to generate income? Because, you know, they paid this dowry that you told us, no? When when they were to be married with God, <laughs> they paid this dowry. But then, you know, they still needed money for everyday things. How how did these two things were connected and, and how this need sort of uh, pushed them to get very, very creative? Yes, let's start by saying that many things really happened inside the convents. Food myth to provide significance to what we eat. It is very important that everything we eat uh, has a noble origin, a, a memorable origin. And that's what happened with many famous dishes today in Mexico. People say that uh, mole or the chiles en nogada were born inside the convents. Uh, we must say that we don't have a single proof of that. There are no documents that prove that this is uh, right, but it is very nice to say it. <laughs> uh, this food comes from very holy places. We have a very romantic idea of being inside a, a feminine convent. Uh, nuns had very difficult lives. They, they were praying, they were washing, they were cooking, they had to sing, they had to go to the masses, they had to clean the convent. So uh, it was very difficult. 
the kitchens inside the convents were some kind of a free space for nuns, where they, they were free to talk, to sing, to share, to play somehow. And they had a, a lot of ingredients coming from the outside. Uh, the ones that they could buy and some ingredients that came from the outside as a donation. So they had a lot of possibilities and they were sharing the knowledge. They could let an African grind the ingredients on a metate, perhaps asking a, a, an Indian to prepare some Spaniard food and, and to use the spices or using the, the sugar. Everything was available inside the kitchens. I am talking about the rich ones. The, the poor ones, uh, they were very poor and they, they, they produced very poor things. But there was another thing we must attend. There was a, an enormous competition in the streets. It was fierce. <laughs> they had to sell their, their products and there were other 20 convents trying to do the same in the streets. So they, they had to be very creative. And every time one nunnery made an addition to the menu uh, or some ornament to a suite uh, that was sold in the street, the other convents would try to compete with that to give something better to get the client. So uh, it was a very creative space. Sometimes they had enough money and enough ingredients coming from everywhere to be creative. That is why they felt so compromised with the people. It's not only the competition with the other nunneries. It, it was to try to, to gain the taste uh, of the people outside, included their families. And the, the very small town around, they had uh, clients that were in love with their foods. So the production must be continuous and creative all the time. In some moment, at the end of the 18th century, uh, there was a very important problem because the crown in Spain decided not to give money to the nunneries. Not anymore. They didn't want to to go on. So they stopped giving money to the nunneries. And that is the exact moment when the convent showed the people outside what was happening in their kitchens. And the, the, the times of the reform in Mexico in the 19th century took away the nuns from their, from their nunneries, from, the, from their convents outside. And they, and they had to survive. The, the very good thing they, they knew how to do was to cook. And, and that is the, the very important moment when we learned that, that they had a wonderful sweet industry. It is very curious that we don't have many books from these nunneries uh, for, for uh, chile nogada or mole. We don't have it. Perhaps it, it doesn't exist. But we like to, to, to think that uh, they were creative enough and baroque enough to create these, these dishes. So we invent some myths to, to sustain the possibility. <laughs> I think it makes perfect sense. So one thing that I really liked is the way you put that our food has to have a meaning. The reason why, as a species that is creative, you know, we have a, a powerful imagination and these societies, both the Spanish society and the indigenous society, were driven by a deep sense of, of spirituality. Of course, of course, their food had to have a meaning, a special meaning. The fact that we created all these myths of origin about not only mole and chiles and ogada, but many other dishes, it has to do with that. It has to do with giving some special connotation. When funding was cut from Rome, well, that really accelerated their need to raise money. And like, you're absolutely right. We don't really have cookbooks as such with recipes. We do have scrapbooks. Writing recipes wasn't really a thing. It was common knowledge for them. So they, they would only have like pieces of notes with just a list of ingredients or just the name of a dish even. But they knew what, what that meant. They were not meant to be read by people outside the kitchen. So that is a real disadvantage for us because that, that it's a problem that we have to... Yes, we have to solve that. And uh, we don't have documents because maybe they are still in use inside, but uh, we need to find them. I think uh, you, are, you are right. Uh, we humans eat more significance and symbols than real food mm -hmm. Be because food is so, it's only for our bodies. Symbolism are for our minds. That's what makes us humans to think, to feel, uh, feel for the body and think for the mind or soul. That, that is why uh, we invent so many things around, around food. We eat symbols. That's it. They give a lot to our identities and what we are uh, like persons. The, the food must talk to us in order to understand what, where we are and what are we doing in that very moment. That turns it into a cultural act, I mean. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and food becomes a vehicle 
through which we connect with all these people that's involved in the production. I just want to pick on another thing you said. I didn't even mention uh, in the setting of the question, but it's very, very important. And it's a big topic, but I just will try to expand a little bit on it. So Mexico had this big complicated process of the reform and the what we call the war of the reform. The reforms consisted in uh, effectively separating the state from the church. And the church, I mean, they, they put up a fight because after 300 years of controlling everything, well, it's understandable that they were not happy <laughs> to simply be removed from power. But it had to happen and it happened. So it was led by then President Benito Juarez. And, and this reform, while politically it was very much needed, reality on the street was was very uh, dramatic. Uh, cloistered life, I mean, living inside these spaces, was suddenly forbidden. So it was against the law, basically, to be a nun or to be a friar. When we talk about these women, these are women who are not equipped to fend for themselves outside. They know the real world or the, you know, the outside world because they came from there. But many of these women have spent their entire lives inside these spaces and have no idea how the world really operates outside. So what happened, at least in the city of Puebla and many other cities, is that many very devoted Catholic families who were already supporters of these nuns, they protected them and they hid them in their houses. It was a punishable crime <laughs> to help these people, but they did. But like you said, if there was something these women were good at, apart from you know, being religious, uh, it, was, it was cooking. When they were kicked out of the convents, they started socializing all this culinary knowledge. Uh, but what you're saying is very, very important because uh, uh, they had to, to be creative once again. They began creating food. This, this is uh, very important because the receivers outside tasted for the very first time food of the convents. And they tried very hard to imitate this food. Many of the street food related to fair and to festivities are popular copies of the sweets that were produced uh, after the reform. Let's have an example. They produced buñuelos. So they were covered with sugar, cinnamon. They looked beautiful, like the wheels of a horse car. But they were imitated outside. They, the, the popular people didn't have the money to buy uh, sugar or the ingredients of the nuns. But uh, they, they tried to make popular copies in the fairs using piloncillo. So it's the same thing, but without the beautiful shape, bigger and cheaper. And we have a lot of examples of that, like, like the merengues, meganos, a lot of uh, popular sweets uh, sold in the streets in the middle 19th century, more or less. You're absolutely right. It inspired a whole range of copycat uh, street foods that are still very popular. So buñuelos will be sweet fritters, but are like very thin and very yes. crisp. There was so much competition that they have to be not only incredibly attractive visually, but also an explosion of flavors. Yes, the food that, that, that came from the convents uh, had a, a Baroque inheritance. It mm -hmm. was beautiful. It was tasty. It sounded very good in our mouth and our ears and had a lot of texture. And they were astonished because the nuns were, were masters in, in, in creating. All these influence just transformed everything outside. And sort of moving on a little bit, both moles and chiles and hogada and sweets and Everything that came from this period has a very long and very complex culinary history and they deserve special episodes. But let's focus now for a moment in mole, which is the Spanish word for this dish, the indigenous language that was spoken by the Mexica tribe, also known as Aztecs. So they spoke Nahuatl. They had different words like muli, chilmuli, chilmole. So you can see how it derived to mole, which is uh, easier to say. So this dish of indigenous origin was prepared with native ingredients, you know, namely chiles, dried chiles, seeds, tomatoes, uh, and other condiments, herbs. But the important thing is that this dish transitioned into the colonial period. It's very curious because this dish was consumed in everyday life, but it was also consumed as part of more complex rituals and celebrations. It goes to exemplify that while the Spaniards, you know, as conquistadors and also the many people that came afterwards, had a generally negative attitude towards the indigenous population and their traditions and their way of life. However, 
they didn't see any problem in acquiring their food and adapting these dishes to their own tastes. So you mentioned something earlier that I thought was very important, and that is that when the ingredients from all these different places from around the world enter these religious kitchens and were transformed by these women, something happened. The meaning changed. It no longer were exotic or mysterious or even suspicious. They became accepted because it was they were transformed by the hands of these holy women. So we could say that it was like a metaphorical purification of the ingredients or the dishes like a whitewashing, <laughs> we will say today. So they, they acquired new meanings, new moral meanings, new spiritual meanings, and they became culturally acceptable. So fast forward in the 19th and 20th centuries, when we see that printing press facilitates the creation of cookbooks, these dishes entered the national taste, quote-unquote, like the national cookbook. This is when it gets very interesting because we can either see these dishes as cultural assimilation or cultural appropriation or even cultural resistance. So which is it? I think it's all of them in many ways, but I don't know what you think. Like, I'm very curious to know what you make of this. Well, uh, inside the, the, the kitchens of the nunneries, there was um, a great variety of persons coming from everywhere in the world. So the, everyone had a hand inside our food. There were Africans, there were Spaniards, and there were indigenous girls, Asian girls. Uh, with them, the, there was an influence from um, the Arabic world across Spain. It was a miracle. It was a miracle what happened inside that kitchens because the people was, were, were free inside the kitchen. And they were happy and they shared everything, ingredients. I think about mole. You were talking about this special Mexican dish, uh, which indeed it has pre-Hispanic, pre-Columbian origin. Not exactly as we know it today, translated uh, like sauce. But sauce uh, is not enough to understand the capabilities of mole. It's a stew. And there were lots of uh, different stews, red, black, yellow, <laughs> orange, it, a lot of them. Uh, what we know today, uh, uh, like an iconic dish in Mexico, is uh, mole poblano. I think Puebla provided the most iconic ingredient that was uh, chocolate or cacao. Uh, that is what makes uh, a, a simple mole uh, a mole poblano. That, that's the difference. And that's very important, of course. I think these uh, dishes were very important for the people because when eating them, everyone could see himself inside these dishes. A little part of me in this uh, dish, in this food. Even if I feel I have some African genetics, I'm, I'm inside the mole. And that is very important to, to understand the, the possibilities of bringing identity to the people. Uh, that's what happens with other, other dishes like chiles en nogada. They have the, the, the Mexican flag, <laughs> the colors. Uh, that, that sounds very nice. Uh, we love so much that, that, that we sometimes forget who brought the spices to the convents, to the nunneries. And the money, the, the user of these spices wasn't Mexican, wasn't uh, an indigenous using using spices, we must admit that some Mexican dishes like mole are very African, are very Arabic. That's, that's important to, to accept. And that's what we eat with, with that significance, <laughs> that symbolism, I think. I often explain the time frame of the creation of dishes like mole in the food tours is that it was exactly the same very transcendental moment all around the world when all cuisines were cross-pollinated. So, say, uh, a pipian rojo is just a cousin of Indian curries because Indian curries only acquire chiles and tomatoes when we acquire the spices. So while these cooks never spoke to each other, never knew of each other's existence, they created extraordinary dishes with ingredients uh, that came from the other side of the world at the same time. And I think moles are dishes that speak to everyone. And I think that is the key. Culturally speaking, they speak to everyone. They spoke to everyone back then. They speak to everyone to this day because they, they have flavors, they have textures that are recognizable to the core of our 
sensory memory and also cultural memory. And you nailed it there. Brilliant. I, I perfectly can imagine an African slave uh, woman cooking uh, inside a convent or a house expressing herself cooking. Perhaps it's not my words. Uh, it's Sydney Mint's words. But yes, they, they found an identity, a new identity. They, they, they had to reveal the, themselves. They, they weren't able to, to talk to other slaves. It was terrible. I think uh, food was uh, a way to communicate or to express all their feelings, all their melancholy, all, all the, the sadness. In the final product, a Mexican could find himself like a Spaniard, like a nation. Everyone were invited. That's, uh, for me, the most important thing about Mexican food, the community, the, the common significance. We never, in Mexico, you know that, cook for one person. We always have to share pozole, rice, chile atole, tamales. We don't cook one tamal. We cook a lot of tamales to invite people and to share, but always in community. That's the very core, for me, of Mexican gastronomy. It's, it's for everyone. And that's Mexican culture. We need to, to share. Yes, yes. Food in Mexico is a social act. You, you have to buy into the whole food culture. No, it's not just a dish. It's a different logic. If you don't share it, like pan de muerto, if you don't share it, what's the purpose of that? We, we need to share. You're absolutely correct. You have hinted again and again about the monasteries, like the male spaces, and I have not really let you much room to talk about that until now. And I know you've done research on this topic, and these religious men came way before religious women, and they had exactly the same needs. I mean, they had to eat, find for themselves how to incorporate new ingredients into their diets, and how to cook them, and how to process them. We know even less about what happened in the kitchens of monasteries. So like, what were their diets like? What was their culinary ingenuity like? What, what did they invent? We know about their businesses, especially the rich communities that came afterwards. Like you said, first there were poor groups and then came much more wealthy groups like the Jesuits. Uh, they had enormous agricultural states that invested in pig farming, wine production, uh, growing cereals. But there is one surviving manuscript, and you know this manuscript very well. It was written by Fray Jerónimo de San Pelayo. It was, well, we assume, finished in 1780. There's so little we know, and this is perhaps like the most precious uh, document we have. What does it tell us about this male universe and, and their tastes, their culinary traditions, and please... Uh, open up this window for us. Well, this document, cookbook by uh, Fray Jerónimo, uh, it, it's from the 18th century. It's too late to understand what happened in the very beginning in the New Spain with the, with the first Franciscans. It is a Franciscan cookbook. So it belongs to a time where everything was completely done by then. Even the poverty of the Franciscans, their reluctance to enjoy the world was relaxing by that moment. You find that these friars ate very well. <laughs> Compared with what the first friars in the 16th century ate, uh, Fray Jerónimo de San Pelayo perhaps was a fat man. Uh, the important thing is that the uh, Franciscan values are visible in this document, like fasting. They had special days of the week or the year to eat some special things. There is the spirit of poverty, famous Franciscan poverty. They renounce to everything material in the world, to, to the world itself. It is present somehow in, in that manuscript. Franciscans must eat everything. So that is why you take a look to this manuscript, which is indeed the only one we have, and you find that everything is present. Lots of uh, pucheros or stews, uh, rice, even sweets. That is why that uh, Franciscan in the 18th century, in the Baroque times, uh, would eat. The very first ones were completely different, very thin persons. The indigenous people would, would see them like dying persons. Every time they went from one town to another, the people was always taking care of them. And they, the people would bring some food every day for the friars to eat, trying to make them eat. But they were fasting all the time. So uh, when they ate, they ate everything. Insects, uh, strange uh, fruits, stews prepared by, by women who, who went to the convents and, and they made big efforts. Uh, and they had to, to say no many times. First, the patios of their convents filled with offerings of food. And they went to the people and told them, please take all this away. We don't need it. Take it away. It's a waste. But the people continue to bring some food. 
So unfortunately, we don't exactly know what they prepared, but we can be sure of something. What they first cooked inside the convents were made with ingredients coming from Mesoamerica because they were so poor, they didn't have any Spaniard ingredients. So they tried everything that was brought to them, but they cooked it in a Spaniard way using a pot called puchero and like soup. Everything went inside a puchero. You could have a piece of meat, bacon, peas, corn, everything. So uh, the pucheros uh, weren't tasty. They didn't want to enjoy it because it was forbidden by the rule. They had to renounce. So many of them had some ashes in their pockets to put on top of their dishes wow. to make them untasty. That was a way to renounce or to make some fasting. They, they were really, really very difficult to understand for, for many people. You have all this food and you don't eat it. No, just to get energy enough to keep working. That's it. So what they cooked it was very simple, not tasty at all. And uh, none of these dishes survived. They had the opportunity and the will to mix things. Here's where Mestizaje was born, inside the uh, male convents. This is the, the very first moment when the, the two cuisines smashed up and crashed. So that, that is the important thing, not the dishes. But the practice a few years later, perhaps that uh, influenced some of, uh, of our Mexican dishes like mole de olla, which is uh, a stew, just like a puchero. And if you take a close look, every ingredient in a mole de olla is very poor. That's the inheritance of the Franciscans or the, the friars. They didn't invent it. But they put uh, the base uh, to make it. That is the importance of these kitchens. So food in female spaces had a different purpose. Well, of course, they had rules. It, it varied from, from religious order to religious order, how vigilant or not uh, they were about these rules. But food was still something to be enjoyed. And also, food for women was produced in order to flatter and in order to please the people that helped them outside. So the food had to be attractive, like you used all these words to describe the food that was that was sensuous, that was that smelled good, that looked good, that sounded good, uh, that tasted good. But in the case of men, the kind of spirituality they had had shaped a different relationship towards food because food was almost an inevitable sufferment of life as opposed to an enjoyment. So things like throwing ash, like you said, which just curled my hair. I mean, that's, that's just, just a different spiritual planet from, from the women's perspective. In some cases, you could see that the girls in the poor observant convents had uh, rules very similar to the, to the Franciscans or the Dominique uh, or the Augustinians. They were uh, renouncing to the world and they were, indeed, they were poor. This uh, wasn't happening in the other the rich uh, convents. When you experience the world with all your senses and you enjoy it. That is Baroque. And of course, the friars were not part of that game. That's a very interesting distinction that will take us to philosophical discussions about taste. I know we could talk for ages, but I just want to squeeze one last question. Because I know you've also written a lot about pre-Columbian cultural gastronomy, like the gastronomy of Mesoamerica. And honestly, I don't get to talk about this with experts. So I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to make you pinky promise that you will come back. But for now, another thing that happened in the monasteries is that there were also indigenous men. And many of these men were, yes, uh, in a state of servitude, but there were also other admired men that were scribes that used to write codices for rulers before the Spanish arrived. So these scribes worked hand in hand with friars to document a lot of many very important aspects of the rapidly fading indigenous world. They co-wrote, or scribes wrote and the friars translated, a lot of knowledge they had on agricultural practices, on herbalism and the medicinal use of, of herbs and barks and roots and all that. And these documents were compiled in what we know and call as codices. And we have two examples, like the Codex of uh, La Cruz Badiano and, of course, the, the Florentine Codex. So what can you share with us about this cooperation that they had and what happened behind the walls of these male religious places? Well, yes, that's a very important moment at the very beginning of uh, evangelization because... Uh, 
the friars uh, had a goal that was to give the indigenous people the word of Christ. The the main objective were not the adults, but the but the kids. The kids were flexible enough to learn the new things and uh, to renounce to the, the knowledge of, of their parents and families. So uh, many of these kids were raised inside uh, some colleges near the, the convents. The most important one was uh, La Santa Cruz de Tlatelolco, which was an imperial college. It was the only school outside Spain that had this wonderful title, Imperial College. So uh, the friars were teaching there. Some, some kids spoke Latin and they were native in, in Nahuatl. And they became uh, very important, creating uh, incredible books like the one you said, that Libellus de Medicinalibus Indorum Erbi, de la Cruz and Badiano, which uh, it's a, a book of medicine, the, the very first one in America. And then it was compiled and it was written in Latin and, and Nahuatl by these students. Uh, they were the right hand of Fray Bernardino de Sagún, who wrote the history of things of the New Spain. It was very important that uh, ancient knowledge had a place inside these books. A lot of, of important data uh, of the cosmovision came into these books because of these this Indian students. And, uh, of course, uh, there is a, a part uh, related to food in the chapter 12 of uh, Fray Bernardino's book. That is the place where you can find some, not recipes, because that, that is a model that didn't exist at that moment. That, that is important. They were the very first mestizos, culturally speaking, in the New Spain. These kids were Indians, but they became intellectually European, and they were very good Latinists. Uh, because of the friars, they were uh, Renaissance men. They, they had a lot of knowledge, uh, and they knew how to communicate it. I, I think uh, it was uh, a very beneficial uh, union. Had it not been for those documents, we really would struggle putting together our cultural history. It's, it's, a, it's a funny thing to imagine these Renaissance young men that just happened to be indigenous fluent in three languages. That is just amazing. Like, scholars from Europe would have drooled over the knowledge that these kids had. Well, at least we have their documents, and uh, that's enough source of pride. Well, Alberto, there's so many interesting things to talk about, but I just want to say uh, that I'm incredibly grateful. You have a website as well. You've done a lot of publishing in Spanish, and we are going to put up links for all your work. So why don't you share with the audience, uh, where can they find you? Yes, well, you can find me in Facebook by my name, Alberto Peralta de Legarreta. I publish uh, themes and, and, and ideas. I invite you to join me. We have a community, a very large community today that is called Cultura Gastronomica de Mexico, uh, where you can find all the ingredients, all the techniques, uh, all the data related to the kitchens, all periods in our history in Mexico. Cultura Gastronomica de Mexico, Facebook. Brilliant. Cultura Gastronomica de Mexico. And one big word, Alberto Peralta de Legarreta. I'm going to put links, of course, and to your website so people can uh, see more about your work. Alberto, again, you have no idea how happy, how thrilled uh, I am to have found you. And having had this lovely conversation, and I really, really hope we can get together again now to talk about the cultural gastronomy in the pre-colonial world. What do you say about that? Uh, that's my, my first uh, academic book, but uh, the, there are more on, on the way. We uh, are now in the publishing of a history of street food in Mexico City, so I hope this year would uh, can see the light. I hope. I hope so. And uh, we have a book from 1823 coming uh, this year too. Uh, it is um, a critical edition of this manuscript that is. Uh, it hasn't been published uh, before. Uh, well, there's a lot of things that are coming thanks to to you and, and all the listeners and, and all these people that uh, is interested in in this um, this part of our, our of our Mexican culture and gastronomy. I'm very thankful because of this chat with you. I had a great time. Well, I hope to listen to you again soon and to be, be here again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, we, we'll stay in touch then. So, bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening. This episode was presented and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. I know this interview was incredibly evocative. So if you want to see the food, places and people that we mentioned today, then scroll on the notes of the show to find the link to the YouTube version. And in the special blog post, there are even more recommendations for further reading material and other books by Dr. Alberto Peralta. In each and every one of my ebooks, there are many references to the deep and rich influences that the colonial period had in Mexican cuisine. Specifically, in my Mexican chocolate ebook, you can find much more about the cultural history and attitudes about eating, fasting, and the chocolate craze in the New Spain. The next episode of the show is a fun crossover from my very own Hungry Books podcast, in which I will take you to discover how World War II was fought from the home front, kitchens, and victory gardens of England. And something tells me that you are really going to like it. Remember, you can always reach out to me on Instagram, Twitter, and via email, you can write me to hello at pasdechipotle.com. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>